$1,000, what would you do with it? The story's told of a huge fire that broke out at a local farm. And the local volunteer fire department, they showed up and they rolled in in their old dilapidated fire truck. And that old dilapidated fire truck rolled right up into the middle of this huge fire. And all the firemen jumped out. They started spraying every direction that they could. And after a short amount of time, that fire had been divided. They were able to put the entire fire out, and it was gone in just a moment. The farmer was so excited, so pleased with their great work, that he immediately wrote the volunteer fire department a check for $1,000. Well, there was a local reporter on the scene, and the reporter came over and was talking to the fire chief. And the reporter said, that is amazing how y'all just rolled right into the middle of the fire with your fire truck and then put everything out. That was amazing. What do you think you're going to do with that $1,000? And the fire chief said, well, the first thing we're going to do is get the brakes fixed on that fire truck. What's the first thing you do when, when life happens, when, when good things or bad things happen, when difficulty comes, when... When good times come, what's the first thing you do? When terrific times happen, when terrible times happen, when happy times happen, when horrible times happen, what's the, what's the first thing you do? What are your first habits? And does it matter? Does it matter what you do first in all of the adventures of life? And is there one thing that you could do that would have a huge impact on your heart and your mind, and your body, and your soul, and your attitude, and everything else in the moments of life? Is there one great thing you could do that would change those moments, help you in those moments? Well, there is. In fact, there's two great things you can do. And what are those two great things? We're going to find out together. James chapter 5, verse 13. James write this. Is anyone among you suffering. The word for suffering here in the religional language, it, it means any and all kinds of difficulty. So do you have any difficulty this week? Have you had any suffering this week? Anything going wrong? Anything hard in life? Well, sure. All of us do, right? We all have difficulty. We all have hard things. Especially as Christians. Especially as Christians, hard things happen. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Why? Well, James is writing here to the early church. And the early church did not have a, a comfortable life. They had government oppression. They had community oppression. It wasn't easy being a Christian in the early days. And the church was a, a hard thing to be a part of because there was so much oppression, so much against the church. So for us as believers, it is especially true that life is hard and difficult. Why? Well, this is what Jesus said. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, If anyone is going to come after me, if anyone is going to call themselves a Christian, then they must take up their cross daily and follow after me. Now, the cross is an instrument of, of death in history. And so really what Jesus is saying is this, If you're going to live, then you have to die. If you're going to be alive, then you, you have to die. What does that mean? Well, it means you have to die to self in order to follow Jesus. What does it mean to die to yourself? 
Well, in the simplest way we can put it, it means that you do not fight to get your way. You do not demand to get your way. Rather, the most important desire of your life, what's first in your life, is to put Jesus first and most. To love and honor Jesus first and most in all the moments of life, no matter what's happened. To die to self means that you no longer put your opinions or your desires as first and most in anything that's going on. Doesn't mean your desires don't matter. Doesn't mean your opinion doesn't matter. It just means it's not first. The love and honor of Jesus is first and most. So following after Jesus is kind of expensive. To follow after Jesus will cost you your whole life. All of you, everything that's in you. We are living in a time and an age and a culture, a society, where there is much talk about individual rights, human rights, our, our rights as people, our rights as citizens. But remember, the call to follow Jesus is a call to give up your rights. That's the very call of Jesus. The call is to die to self. Doesn't mean that our rights don't matter. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have human rights and individual rights, but they're not first and most. What's first and most is you take up your cross and you follow after Jesus. The call of Jesus is to die to self and to follow him, but where are we following him? Well, the old song says what? Well, I'll fly away. Well, where are we flying to? song goes on to tell us we're flying to a land. We're flying to a, a country, to a celestial shore, to a place, to the only place where joy will never end. Are you looking for this land, this country, the beaches of, of our shores? Are you looking for this place, this world, this earth to be the place where your joy will never end? If so, then you will be disappointed. This place is not the place where joy will never end. Now, that doesn't mean that our life has to, to be like a hell on earth. It just means that this here is not where joy will never end. So if we're going to follow after Jesus, if we're going to take up our cross, profess to be a Christian, and follow Jesus as Christians, then we need to remember that part of what that means is that suffering and affliction will come. Part of what it means to follow after Jesus is you will feel like you're losing your rights sometimes, and sometimes you will lose your rights. That's part of the guarantee of following after Jesus. So James is being super kind to the church. He's like, hey, by the way, suffering will happen. Affliction will happen. If you're going to follow Jesus, life will be difficult and life will be hard. Sign me up, right? <laughs> That's what I'm signing up for. But what are we supposed to do? If it's guaranteed that suffering will come, if it's guaranteed that affliction will come, what are we supposed to do? James tells us in the next part there. Is anyone su among you suffering? Then he must pray. When suffering and difficulty comes, pray. Our first reaction to suffering should be to pray. Is it? I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, is, is that our first gut reaction to suffering and difficulty? 
Do we immediately pray when, when things are chaotic, when things get out of control, when things don't go the way that we want them to go? Do we immediately pray? Is that our, our practice, our habit? Or when things don't happen the way we want them to, when difficulty comes, when suffering comes, when affliction comes, is our first response more to complain or to be in despair or to be angry or afraid or, or to try to have some revenge? or to repost that angry post from the angry politician as soon as we can? Is our first response when suffering and difficulty and confusion comes to pray, or do we do other things? Do we run in other directions? Joseph was 23 years old. He was engaged to be married. His fiancée was riding her horse along a river in Northern Ireland. She went across a bridge over that river and somehow fell off the horse, fell into the water, and drowned. It was the day before their wedding. This was a, a real moment in Joseph's life. This isn't just a story. And not long after her death, Joseph heard the gospel. Maybe for the first time. Maybe he'd never heard the truth about Jesus. But he heard the gospel, or maybe he had grown up in church and he heard it over and over again, but he had never responded. But overcome with grief over losing his fiancée, the gospel captured his heart. And he prayed, and he died to self, and he began to follow Jesus. Overcome with grief, overwhelmed with despair, he discovered the truth of everlasting salvation, and he discovered the deep hope of the gospel. In the middle of suffering, in the middle of affliction, he discovered hope. Many years later, his mom was having a season of, of sadness and sorrow. And it was so deep that he decided to write her a song. He had no intentions of anyone ever seeing this song but his mom. In fact, the song was never published until after he died. And that song was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Joseph wrote that song for his mom, thinking no one would ever see it but her. Part of that song has these words, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. We just say, I don't want peace. I don't want anything to do with it. Why? Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. James says, is anybody suffering? Then he should pray. The Apostle Paul, he kicked that up a notch. He said we should pray without ceasing. Now, how in the world do you do that? How do you pray nonstop? Well, praying without ceasing means that you pray in a way that understands you are utterly and completely dependent own God. Just considering your life today, your ability to have lunch, your ability to have a car, your ability to have a home, your ability to breathe, everything about who you are, praying without ceasing means you understand that is a reflection of the grace of God. You are dependent on God. Praying without ceasing means you keep praying even when your prayer is not answered the way you want it to be answered. You keep praying and you keep praying and you keep praying because the goal is not ultimately just to have your prayer answered. The goal is for you to know this God that we gathered to speak and sing and pray about today. 
This God who loves you so much that he so gave his son for you. See, the purpose of our praying is to know who God is. And so James is telling them, look, when you're suffering, you need one huge gut reaction. You need to turn to God. You need to turn to the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who gave his son for you. You need to make it the routine of your mind and your heart and your mouth to turn to God over and over again. Are you suffering? Then pray. Let that be your first gut reaction. Let that be your automatic trigger when something difficult, something hard, something unpleasant happens in life. Pray, 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 pray doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to know a lot of words, but you can pray. You don't have to pray the same prayer that you pray over the food. You can pray something a little different, but you can pray. You can cry out to God. But what if you aren't suffering? What if something else has happened? James says in the next part of verse 13, Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. There are many joyful moments in life. Moments where everything is good. And just like we said with suffering, this is especially true for Christians. Suffering is especially a reality for Christians, but so is cheerful joy. It's especially a reality for Christians. In fact, we could make the argument that every single moment of a Christian's life, even the terrible ones, are marked with joy. How? How could we make that argument? Because we know Jesus. Because we're saved. In any and every moment, our salvation changes the equation. No matter what's happening, no matter what we're experiencing, being in Christ changes everything. The reality that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that changes everything. The reality that we can lay our head down at night and we can whisper to our souls, I am His and He is mine. I am a child of the King. That changes the moment. It changes everything. If you have reason to be cheerful, it is because of the grace and the mercy of God in your life. In any moment, in any situation, your ability to have joy, your ability to be cheerful, your ability to think good thoughts and feel good feelings is a reflection of the grace of God in your life. His kindness and His love towards you. So, are you cheerful? Then sing. The automatic trigger for cheerfulness in a Christian should be praise to God. What James is promoting here is, is not radical, but we tend to not live like this, right? James is promoting that we approach every single thing in life with an attitude that reflects on the greatness and the goodness of God. That's, that's how we function. We function as people that in every moment in life we say, how great thou art, God. In this moment, as terrible or as terrific as it is, God, you are great. Everything I have is connected to you. Someone said it's almost like we take everything in life and we throw it on a trampoline. 
and everything just bounces up to God. Right? So you take suffering, boing, bounces up to God, and it's us saying, God, I don't know what to do. Here, here, I'm, I'm sending this up because I don't know what to do. Help, please. Are you cheerful? Boing, it, it goes up to God. God, here, I'm only cheerful, I'm only joyful because you are so kind and so loving and so gracious. I just breathe that last breath because of your kindness. So God, my cheer is a reflection of you. Thank you. Over and over again, what James is doing, what the whole of the Bible does, is it points us back to the greatness and the goodness and the kindness of God in every single moment of our life. These commands are not hard. And I'm so thankful. Because life is hard. So I'm thankful that God in his kindness hasn't made the Bible hard. These commands are simple, right? Are you suffering? Pray and sing. Are you cheerful? Pray and sing. Pray and sing. Pray and sing. As we shared earlier, we're super excited for Brad and Georgia and their family. And as we enter another time of transition in our musical worship, how do we need to be thinking and praying? And the reason I say another time of transition is this church, as every church, is always in transition when it comes to music. Always. Every church has always been in transition, will always be in transition until Jesus returns. It's been said that throughout history, when the church is experiencing renewal and revival, that new songs are written. New songs are written about the greatness of God in times of renewal and revival, but not just renewal and revival in times of sorrow and sadness. Joseph Scriven wrote a song for his mom in the middle of sorrow and sadness. It was a brand new song 166 years ago. 23 years ago, in the middle of stress and strain, I wrote a brand new song about God. It's been said that the church is always singing the old and new songs about God because it's what we do you look in the New Testament and the Old Testament, you see that God's people were always singing. You see in the New Testament that the one thing, the, the three things rather that marked the early church was preaching and praying and praising. Preaching and praying and singing. It was part of who the church was. They sang their praise to God. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus and Colossae, he said, look, I want you to teach one another, I want you to encourage one another, I want you to admonish one another with songs and psalms and spiritual songs. Over and over again, we see God's people singing old songs and new songs. We see God's people praising God. The message of all of the Bible is the same. It says it in different ways and at different times. Are you suffering? Pray and sing. Are you cheerful? Pray and sing. We sing because we're happy. We're singing because God is good. Someone might say, though, well, I'm not a great singer. In fact, I don't even like music. I don't care about singing. I wish we didn't do it. I attended two graveside services this past week. At both of those services, there was impromptu congregational singing. Now, I will admit impromptu congregational singing at graveside services usually feels a little bit awkward. And there were people there that had beautiful voices. And there were people there that didn't have beautiful voices. And when you're standing outside in a place of death and you hear voices singing about the amazing grace of God and the hope of heaven, it does something. 
And for me personally, to hear people who aren't great singers singing about the grace of God and the hope of heaven, it helped me, it encouraged me, it impacted me. So if you are somebody that says, well, I don't like music and I can't sing well, let me just plead with you, if you are a believer, please sing. It matters to me. And it matters to others. When there's an opportunity for Christians to sing together, let us sing together, whether we can sing great or whether we can't sing at all. Let us sing. Let us praise God together. Sure, not everybody's supposed to be on stage singing a solo. We got that. We know that. But as believers, we all have the ability to sing. Oh, and by the way, we're actually commanded to praise God. So you need to sing. Don't disobey God. We need to sing. We have reason to sing. So we'll keep singing as a church. We'll keep singing as a congregation. And long after we're dead, if Jesus has not returned, this church will still be singing without us. You know why? Because the worship of Holland Avenue Baptist Church doesn't depend on me, and it doesn't depend on you. The singing at Holland Avenue Baptist Church doesn't depend on me, and it doesn't depend on you. The worship, the singing, depends on the great and grand and glorious news of the gospel. That's what worship depends on. It depends on the glory of God and the message of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is alive and well at this church. Has been for six decades and Lord willing will continue. So we sing and we worship because God has been so good. We sing and we worship because the grace of God has found so we have the, the privilege of being a multi-generational church. That's, that's a big deal. It's a, it's a huge honor. It's, it's what a family is supposed to be, right? A family is supposed to be a, a lot of different ages, a lot of different people, you know? We see that in Scripture, right? The, the body of Christ, we're not all supposed to be hands, we're not all supposed to be feet. We're different. So it's a, a huge privilege that our church is not just senior adults, and our church is not just young people. We are multi-generational. That is a huge gift from God. In 2021, our church is a fantastic gift from God. Please be thankful for God's kindness to our church. He is being so good to us. So, how do we transition as a church over and over, day after day, Sunday after Sunday, year after year, and singing and praising God. Well, there's a lot that can be said about church music and singing. Some of it makes people happy, some of it makes people mad, but we're not going to go in all those directions. I just want to give one verse of Scripture and then just some, some practical comments for us to chew on. And here's the Scripture. This is the attitude every one of us should have about church music, about singing. John 13, 35. By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have... I feel like I underlined every sentence on the page. And all of those sentences, I think, perfectly match up what Jesus has called us to do in loving one another and how it matches with musical worship. And so I just want to share some of those thoughts with you from John Frame. This is what he says. Some complaints of the older generations may be petty, creating unnecessary conflict over matters of musical taste. But generally, their complaints are more serious than that. One's hymnody is his language of worship. It is the language of his heart's conversation with God. To lose the hymns one has grown up singing 
is therefore no small thing. He goes on. The younger generation should learn to sympathize with this sense of loss and to accommodate their desires to the spiritual needs of their fathers and mothers in Christ. But the opposite is also true. If the older generation do not bend somewhat, the younger will be deprived of their own language of worship, those forms of God's word intelligible to them by which they can best grow in Christ. And he sums it up with this. In this respect, both sides should defer to one another in love, in the spirit of Christ. Multi-generational churches should bend with love toward one another. It's the call of Jesus on our lives, not just with music, but with anything. We bend toward one another in love. We defer toward one another in love. He goes on. It is interesting that the music of younger generations always tends to be criticized by older generations as irreverent. While the music of older generations tends to be criticized by younger generations as lacking joy and vitality. And these generation gaps parallel similar ones in secular musical circles. Let me just give some commentary to that. What that means is, what we argue about outside the church about music, sometimes we argue about inside the church about music, and that shouldn't be. In other words, what's happening outside should not affect what's happening inside. Our goal is to bend toward God. And then he says this, these recurring patterns suggest that some of our complaints about music in the church may be based on factors other than a proper zeal for God. So both sides should bend with love toward one another for the purpose of having a zeal for God, not a zeal for style. We should not be zealing for style. We should be zealing for God. And if we're zealing for God, you know what happens? The style will work itself out. You know why? Because we're bending in love toward one another. That kind of zeal for God is produced by love for God, and that kind of love for God produces humility in the church, and humility, according to Jesus, is a sign of greatness, so let's be a great church. Let's be a great church that bends and defers and loves, not just in musical transitions, but in any transition. The goal of the church is for us to make the most we can of Jesus Christ. And can I just say, in 2021, the church is struggling we are struggling, maybe more than any other time in history, in the focus actually being on Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about our church in particular. I'm talking about the church in general. And this past year, we have been prone to wander toward every other issue we can find in the universe except for Jesus. And so whether it's music or preaching or or prayers, or Bible studies, or anything else in the world, as believers, because we have taken up our cross to follow after Jesus, we bend, we defer to one another in love. That's what it means to love. That's what it means to be humble. That's what it means to be great. Over and over again, that's the picture that we see in the Scriptures. That's the call 
of Jesus. Part of being a great church is loving and learning. So, got a little homework assignment for you. Ready? A little homework. Go to our website, hanavenue.com, and go to the feedback tab, and we have a little musical worship survey we'd love for you to take. It'll take you 43 seconds, okay? I don't know. It may take you more than that, but I mean, it's not long, okay? We'd love to hear from you about musical worship in the church. James says, anybody suffering? Anybody suffering today? We have people in our church family that are suffering this morning. We have people in this room that are, that are suffering with something. And James says, if you're suffering, pray and sing. Pray and sing. And he also says, are you cheerful? Are things good? Are things going well? Then pray and sing. We do understand how much we need one another, right? Because there are days that you are down and you need my worship. And there are days that I am down and I need your worship. We need each other. It's, it's part of what the church is. And can I also just boast in the Lord that from my perspective, we have come through this year and God is being tremendously gracious to our church. There are so many good and great things happening in the life of the church. The salvation conversations that happened this week through VBS cancel out whatever discouragement we may have experienced from this pandemic. At least it does for me. Someone coming to faith in Christ through the ministry of our church cancels out my discouragement of the news. Because the greatest thing in all the world is knowing, treasuring, and being saved by Jesus. James says, are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Pray and sing. Pray and sing. I don't know exactly what's happening in some of your lives. I do know what's happening in some of your lives. But I can say this, every single one of us today, all of us are at a place today where we need to pray and sing, where it would be good for us to turn to God. Why? Let me just read you a description of, of some things that have happened in some people's lives uh, over the last 10 years. I found this from another pastor and something he was sharing. Listen to this list. You're probably going to hear yourself or you're going to hear somebody you know in this list. Lord, I didn't know it was going to be like this. I didn't know that I was going to struggle with chronic illness. I didn't know that I was going to bury a daughter and her children. I didn't know I was going to deal with marital infidelity. I didn't know I was going to have to rear my children on my own. I didn't know I was going to struggle with depression over and over again with no sign of relief. I didn't know that I was going to struggle keeping a job my entire life. I didn't know that my children were going to betray me. I didn't know that it was going to be so hard to care for my parents. It's been 20 years now that I've been caring for my mom, and she's hard to care for. you hear anything in that list that can connect with your life? And then he goes on to say this, Lord, I didn't know, but I'm turning to you. I didn't know, God, 
I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I didn't know I was going to be this stressed. I didn't know I was going to be this angry. I didn't know I was going to cry this much. I didn't know I was going to go in my room, shut the door, and stay away from my family as much as I could. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I didn't know there was going to be this suffering. I didn't know all of this was going to happen. But God, I'm turning to you. God, I'm turning to you when it feels like my country is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm turning to you. I'll never turn to the president first. I'm turning to you, God. I'm turning to you. God, I didn't know my health and my family and my job. I didn't know all of these things were going to happen. But I do know this. You love me. And God, you sent your son to die for me. So I'm turning to you. I'm turning to you. I know there's some other things I can turn to, God. And they'll help for an hour, two hours, three days, something. But I'm turning to you because you are the lover of my soul. You love me most. Are you suffering? Turn to Christ and pray and sing. Are you cheerful? Turn to Christ and pray and sing and keep turning and keep turning and keep turning and keep turning. Why? There's another old song that I think helps. The words go like this. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. The soul that is turning to Jesus over and over again. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake.